Hello, everyone, and welcome to Placing Faces, the show where we sit down with some of the most influential casting directors in all of Hollywood and across the entertainment spectrum. I hope that you are well and keeping safe out there. I'm your host, Charlie Chappell, and today we speak with a wonderful casting director and such a sincere human being, Stephanie Clapper. Stephanie is based out of New York and has worked on Broadway, off-Broadway, regionally, internationally, on television, and on film. Projects she has cast have won numerous awards, including Tonys and Obies and Ardios and Pulitzer Prizes, Sundance Audience Awards, Cannes Prize to Public, and Comic-Con Awards. She schools me a whole lot on theater, something I am woefully ignorant on, and a whole lot less now. So enough of me yapping, let's get into the good stuff. I hope that you learn as much as I did. So we'll we'll just jump right in. Great. It seems like a lot of your work, though, has been in the theater world. So I've been a little bit worried about this conversation because usually I am hyper prepared. But theater, because it's it's vaporous, it, it's there in a moment and then it goes away. It's hard to study. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. The players in that world, I, I know very little about. So going with a little meta question to kind of start off is how can an actor who is ignorant of the theater begin to research and understand the shoulders of the giants that came before and and get an actual grasp of that? Oh, that's a good it's question. A, it's a big question <laughs> to <laughs> start things off. That's a big question. <laughs> um, I, just to take a step back, I, it's interesting because I grew up in New York and I grew up going to the theater from the time I was very little. Um, so when I think of people who maybe are more exposed to theater in school or, or through their English classes, I think they tend to frequently get some of the more well-known playwrights. So we're talking Shakespeare and Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller, mm-hmm. um, for example. And I think that if I think it's about language and about enjoying the sense of language. And so I think it's it's exploring those writers and people like them. To start, I also think what's happened, I think it's always been there, but even with live television and such, but even more so recently with TV shows that are now using a lot of um, actors from the stage on TV shows. I think The Good Wife does it, did it. I mm-hmm. think The Good Fight does it. I think there's so many shows now. Um, my goodness, Pose, Billy Porter, yeah. you know, was in Kinky Boots, amongst other things, and suddenly he's getting his due after all this time. It's not as though he wasn't around I think it's now the consciousness of the worlds coming together are more exciting and more possible. Whereas when I was first starting out, you were either a theater actor, a film actor, or a TV actor. It's just hard line and, across the and, board, yeah. And I, I think that if you're starting out now, I think it's always good to have a foundation in, in stage acting, even if that's not where your your passion lies eventually, because you've got to know the basics, just like... And, and you've got to come to the root of what the art is. Just like as a musician, you would learn your scales before playing a piece of music. You've got to know how to support that talent. So that's what I would suggest. Yeah. And seeing a lot. I think there's so many great opportunities in L.A. and other places to see, to see theater, not just in New York and Chicago and the occasional. But I think it's all over the place. And I think it's just a matter of people finding those opportunities and taking the time to cut off from everything else and just focus on, on that medium on stage, that live medium that's unlike any other. Where, where does your love for theater come from? I mean, growing up in New York and being a rowdy growing up, I, I assume helps, but what cemented that? 
Actually, I didn't like going to the theater as a kid. It was it was oh. something my parents took me to. Yeah, no, my parents were great. They took me to see shows, and it was it was a big deal because you had to wait. It, I think there was the element of they got the tickets, but then there was a lot of time that went before you actually got to go. It wasn't like you buy a movie ticket and you go that day. It was, hey, Stephanie, we got tickets to July 4th. Yeah. So cool. I think it was the event, and I think it was the fact that it um, when I went with my parents, my seats were probably better than when I went with school groups, <laughs> and I was further away from the stage, so I felt very cut off. Mm. So actually... Um, it came in a very backwards way. I went to film school thinking I was going to be a film director. And one day I wasn't enjoying it very much. And I was talking to my dad and he said, you're really more of a theater person. I think you may want to really think about that. And um, I, I walked into a theater in the West Village and the person there gave me the opportunity to be a stage manager. And that's really where my love of theater came from being hands on in that way. And that's what made me sort of go in that direction. What do you think were some of the the qualifiers or the the things about you that made you a theater person as opposed to a film person? Um, I um, theater moves quicker, and in in terms of the process of it, mm -hmm. and it's it's collaborative in terms of it's more one on one and it's a smaller team in many cases, not all cases. When one is doing a larger musical, you could have many, many, many people. But on the whole, it just was one to me that was more immediate in what could happen mm -hmm. in that way, and and I could work more with the actor because I was hoping to be a director, and I could work more with the actor than worry about the equipment and the lighting and the editing and the syncing of the sound. And all of that, mm -hmm. and I had, and I could depend on less people to make a project happen. So, did that come out of necessity, or was it because you kind of just landed in that world? I think the world found me. Yeah. Um, the necessity was being in film school. I I realized that it just, as I said, it took too long, and it wasn't as much fun. I liked the people I worked with a lot, but um, I didn't feel my skill set was as well matched in it. Mm. I felt that I saw through, actually came through doing dramatic literature and being a literature major, film major who went into literature and dramatic literature and ultimately directing. So it's sort of a winding path that I found I was best facilitating actors' work as a director and, and seeing it that way. Mm. What was it early on that made you think that you wanted to be a film and television director or get into that? <laughs> I, st I started out as a musician. Mm -hmm. I, I was a flutist from the time I was very young. And um, I really thought that would be my path, would be performing with major orchestras. And it was, um, you may appreciate this from your background, my senior year of high school, I got a great job working for a film archive and being one of the people to um, do clippings. And I got in a lot of trouble for doing more reading than clipping. And I had a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of films from staying up all night watching old movies on TV. And um, the person I was working for was kind of surprised that somebody of my age and skill set would know so much about film. And he said, you should really apply to film school. And I applied to film conservatories having never made a movie, but having kept film journals. And as I said, watching movies nonstop. What do you mean film journals? Uh, I would do my own reviews of films to, to just sort of keep track of what I had seen in the actors in it. Huh. That's a theme. 
I've seen there are multiple casting directors that I've seen who did that from an early age. That's fascinating. I I really kind of dig that because I I'm before doing this show, I've never met anybody who had done that or who had kept mm-hmm. film journals. That's interesting. Yeah, and and it was really I found my strong suit when I did get into film school. And I, I give them a lot of credit for accepting me. And as I said, having never made a movie, but just based on knowledge. And a lot of the people I was in school with, had, it had been their lives to make movies. Mm-hmm. It's just what they did. And it was, um, I was in a department of 60 people and um, 58 of them were men. So 58 it was the first of them. Time, yes. So it was the first time I, I had encountered anything like that and, and Many of the department were great friends to this day, but it was just a very different dynamic than I had grown up with and been aware of before going into college. Huh. Well, how did that transition out of college into the professional world take Um, you? Well, I got great internships. Mm -hmm. I got to work for the uh, public theater and Lee Brewer, who who, uh, Mabu Minds. And I got to be his assistant on, on The Tempest with Raul Julia and also uh, learn the, cool. the Javelin because there was Indi- um, there was Indonesian music. So it, it played into other other things in my background. My flute teacher um, had a boyfriend who was writing a new Broadway musical and they needed somebody to turn pages for the pianist in the workshop. And that turned out to be Nine the Musical and her boyfriend was, um, was Maury Yeston. So I, I got to witness um, history being made and and not even planning for that. And out of that, the producers of Nine hired me when I graduated from college and I worked for them for a while, always directing, but, mm-hmm. but doing that and really being immersed in another side of the business that I never expected to be in because I um, was more interested in experimental work and, and work by foreign um, creators and France, one French drama was something I was very interested in. So it was a very eclectic background. Um, and after the job with the producers ended, I ended up working uh, in theatrical advertising for a while, production management, stage management. I worked with a, a set designer. And um, along the way, I ran into another director who said a small off-Broadway theater was looking for a casting person. And I went on the interview thinking, well, this will be a good way to find other actors for my projects. Mm-hmm. You know? And um, so it was an accidental career for me, as I think it's been for many. Yeah. What was that transition time like for you? Mm. I worked for that theater for about four years, really still pursuing directing. Mm-hmm. And that, that theater job alone wasn't able to pay the bills, so I had to do other things. But along the way, um, a friend of mine said, you know, you seem to really be enjoying this and I have a spare space in my office. Maybe you want to move to my office from where you're casting and do some other things. And suddenly I had an office space that was outside of that theater and people started coming to me about other jobs. So um, I thought I should really listen to what's going on. If this is people really need my work and they seem to be appreciating what I'm doing, um, I need to think about that. And I realized the part of casting that I loved so much was the putting people together and helping directors to um, bring to light their vision. Um, it seemed like maybe this is something I need to be mindful of. Mm-hmm. So when was it that you made that full decision to, I am, I am a casting director? 
boy. It probably was in the, it was around 1990. Mm -hmm. And so for those 10 years, I'd say from 1990 to about 2001, I was doing it full time. Um, and always thinking, is this, I love what I'm doing. Uh, I wonder if this is the right thing to be doing, but I really love it. I'm going to keep on doing it. And then 9-11 um, happened and I did a lot of great reflecting and thought, huh, is there a point to doing what I'm doing? Because right now I'm feeling like a lot of things are pretty pointless. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a very young family and um, I really was, was in a spot where I didn't know what to do because we had also been displaced. And um, I put my casting abilities into play with, with getting us um, some publicity for our parents' organization because our kids were being put back into school down near the 9-11 spot. And I was very angry about it. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the first time I realized that my skill as a casting person could also help people in a different way. And that's when I, I, I stopped questioning what I was doing and decided this is what I'm meant to do. And I love it even more than I did before. Even more? Mm-hmm. Because mm -hmm. it, it was a renewed energy and a renewed purpose. And I realized, it's sort of like I forget what Woody Allen movie it is where he's feeling quite despondent and he goes to a Marx Brothers movie and he, he starts laughing and realizes that there is that the meaning of life is in laughing in the Marx Brothers. Mm. And <laughs> I don't know if that analogy quite works here, but it was an aha moment where I, where I, I felt there was purpose. Huh. Interesting. So in, in those moments where you're questioning it, you actually use that skill set for something different. Other mm -hmm. than other than actually casting, and that reinvigorates you to cast more. It did because it was a different kind of connecting of people to make something happen. So you needed to see the power of that again, in a in a deep way. Or just be reminded because it could feel a little trivial sometimes, and and yeah. I I felt like it needed to go beyond that. Well, I mean, over the course of your twenty five plus year career. I'm sure, uh, say, triviality <laughs> sets in sometimes. How do you as a casting director or as just a creative individual deal with that and trudge through it? Because sometimes it's really difficult. Uh, I, I think I have to remind myself, that I'm, and not to sound mundane, but I'm really fortunate that this is what I get to do for a living. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so I think that... It's a tough job, as, as we talked about and as you know, but I think that um, problem solving is hard, but but when but knowing that it will get solved and there will be, I mean, I, I feel that there's 99.9% .9 of the times the, the end result is wonderful and um, worth the sweat and hard work that goes into it I and those feelings agree. of futility. I absolutely agree. When you when you finally see that thing that you've made kind of come together, uh, it it puts all of that in the far far back of your mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so you have cast all sorts of things, like we said, from Broadway to regional, and you've cast a lot of Shakespeare. I do. I actually just recently, um, speaking of theater in Los Angeles, yes, there is theater in Los Angeles, everybody, and you should go watch it. The Griffith Park uh, has Shakespeare in the Park every summer, and right now they're doing Twelfth Night. Watched that oh, nice. about a week ago. It's the first time I'd seen Twelfth Night. It was really lovely. 
there were some just differences in uh, from what I understand previous casting has been for the show. I'm curious on the most often produced Shakespeare plays. How much do previous productions come into consideration when casting? Oh, I don't. I um, that's interesting. I mean, with my directors, they're they're coming from the place of um, usually originality and intention. For Hudson Valley Shakes, when my director, who's also the artistic director of Hudson Valley Shakes, um, did Richard the Second last year, he had a, a woman in the role of Richard. Okay. And I think he just felt that that worked for his concept and what he wanted. And she was really the anchor to the production. And it was quite magical. Um, I, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, most of my directors, when I do um, New York Classical Theater in Central Park, that's a director who does what he calls panoramic staging. And that's where the audience follows the actors from one place oh, to the cool. other. So it's really cool. And lately, I think because of economics, but also because of concept, he's been reducing the size of the roles, not the size, the number of cast members. So therefore oh. having people double more. Yeah. So that's what I mean by reducing the size of the roles. So I think conceptually, he's been doing something like that. So he did a Romeo and Juliet last season where um, the nurse was played by a man because he also played other roles. Mm -hmm. And it really worked quite well and was quite wonderful. And I think it allowed the audience to experience it very differently. So that, that was kind yeah. of magical in that way. So I think that um, the trick with Shakespeare these days, I find, is that people, if it's the histories, people are trying to make them more relevant to our times because mm -hmm. heavens knows we're dealing <laughs> with very interesting times right now and yes, we quite are. Shakespearean at times. Mm -hmm. And, um, and um, there are times with the comedies where, where they're too, like, I think... Um, Taming of the Shrew is a very challenging play to do right now because of, of the sexual politics involved. And I think that when people choose to do it, they need to think conceptually of, of how they're going to do it so that that still plays um, in these times. Is that taken into consideration? I mean, I guess that has to be taken into consideration. It has to be. Right. It has and it's something I would never have thought about. Uh, you know, Shakespeare to me is Shakespeare. Shakespeare is, you know, men with the funny neck collars and the tights and all that stuff but that's oh, because thankfully nobody's really doing it that way right at least in my experience lately <laughs> right and it's... when you have a play like Macbeth that's mm -hmm. that's all about power and and such you know you look at our times you go huh that's an interesting play to do right now absolutely I just watched uh National Theater Live does their screenings um uh, in theaters every now and again and my producer for this show uh, has been introducing me to theater she knows a lot more about theater than I do um, and National Theater Live did a Julius Caesar uh, last season that was incredible because it I mean the guy walks out wearing a bright red hat and a, <laughs> and a suit and a tie that's way too long and uh, it the way they built it around modern events was really beautiful um, that's fun. It was cool. Um, but what's you, Oh, could I just please. say one thing that you're reminding me of? That I'm going back to your very first question about yeah. actors and being introduced to theater. Mm -hmm. And you reminded me actually of a wonderful Canadian series called Slings and Arrows that sort of pokes fun at the regional theater. Mm -hmm. And it is such a great sort of introduction 
to to a particular type of theater and, and in a comedic way. And it is just Rachel McAdams is in it, a very young Rachel McAdams. And um, it's just it, it's supposed to be like Stratford Theater Festival in, in Canada. And I think that that helps to sort of give a great introduction to theater and, and the quirky personalities that we all know and appreciate in it. Awesome. It looks I'm, I'm looking at uh, pictures of it right now. It looks incredible. Um, and with what you're talking about with Shakespeare and such, the first season is Hamlet. The second season is Macbeth. And the final season is King Lear. And, oh, cool. Uh, it's a beautiful arc of, um, of, as I said, just a theater company striving to stay alive amidst the... Um, the slings and arrows and toils and tribulations uh, and trials and tribulations of, of uh, a, a um, company that has its ups and downs. It's really wonderful. That's cool. I, I cannot wait to check that out. Huh. Um, so one of the things that I stumbled across and I, I wanted to come up with some more interesting questions about Shakespeare because I feel like everything's been asked about Shakespeare. It's been around for so long. Of course it has. And one of the things that I stumbled on is a data set, um, a, a man by the name of Eric William Lynn uh, put together. And I think it had to do something with a class he was in or something. I'm not really sure. Um, but it basically breaks down the how gender, age, and race affect casting in Shakespeare. And he dives into data from a thousand plus productions of 10 different Shakespeare plays between 1900 and 2018. And what's fascinating about it is how things used to be, how things most recently were, and how things are going. And, and mm -hmm. you talk about gender swapping roles, you talk about. Uh, younger people playing older roles or, or that sort of thing right now you know on average your King Lear is going to be 60 years old plus most mm -hmm. of the people playing King Lear but as early as like the 1900s people in their 30s were playing King Lear uh, women were playing King Lear different people from different times and it's 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 all it's all correlated to the times, of course, but I think what's really interesting about right now and the world that we're moving into is diversity and the ability to play these other characters and to be these other things is opening up. And in a way that it was open before, but we just may not realize it. Um, and I'm curious from your perspective if you are seeing more of that or if this data set is just a small indication. Wow, that's a that's a big question there. Yeah. Um, I I feel that Shakespeare has always been one in which people have felt more creative in in their interpretation. I think that maybe we've just been a little more aware of it um, because people are being more aware of diversity overall now. Mm -hmm. But if you go back to I think it was the early 1970s and and Joe Papp's Shakespeare in the Park. He had, I, I believe, um, I, I'm trying to remember if it was Meryl Streep and Raul Julia doing Taming of the Shrew together. I, I would have to double check that. But, but you know, I think that he did things with, with um, race and gender and with his directors even back then. I just, I do think it's just we're we're just more aware of it. Mm -hmm. But I think Shakespeare has always sort of supported that. Yeah. Quite honestly. 
Well, do you see more and more opportunities? Is is it happening more and more in casting, or has it always been happening? And I'm just ignorant to it. I don't think you're ignorant. I think that I think it has always been happening. I just think maybe you're seeing it more frequently done and are becoming more aware of it. Mm-hmm. I I do think I have seen in auditions more gender swapping and monologues, Shakespearean monologues than ever before that I have been aware of. Oh, so people coming in and reading. Uh, um, or if they're just doing a general audition, they may they may choose to do, um, a woman may choose to do Hamlet. Okay. And, and, and interpret it for herself in that way. Mm-hmm. What are some of the more difficult roles to fill in Shakespeare? Do any stand out? Uh, that's, I, it depends on many things. It depends where it's being done. Mm. It depends on, on the contract that the actors are being paid. Uh, it depends on the time of year. So mm. I, I can't blanket, I can't blanket say it, it depends on, uh, who's, who's directing it. Sure. So it's, it's hard to say. Um, we were casting a, a, um, Hamlet very recently, a production of Hamlet very recently for Utah Shakes. And it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, Cedar City, and uh, a fantastic director. And um, we ended up with a really superb cast. But um, part of it is, even with all of those things and people who are getting paid a nice amount of money, it means being away from a lot of film and TV for about five months. Mm-hmm. So it really has to be people who, who want to make that commitment to be doing that play or maybe being part of the entire season to to do that and, and put maybe their lives on hold if they're L.A.-based or New York-based or Chicago or otherwise and, and say, this is the project I want to be doing and this is the place I want to be doing it. How much is that onus on you to find and, and to, uh, I guess, iron out those details with the actors? Uh, I have to start with that. They have yeah. to know those details before yeah. they come in for the audition because it would be terrible if they come in for the audition and the, and the client falls in love with them and they go, oh, just kidding. I don't want to go away for five months. Sorry, right. but I really am happy to meet you. Right. That, that's a bad thing. Do you feel like that reflects on you having the work beforehand? Or it would reflect badly on yeah. me if we hadn't given them that information ahead of time. Sometimes right. it happens, but mm-hmm. but we, my team and I, are really make sure that the actor and the representatives, when they ha- when they are represented, know each and every detail, so that that kind of thing happens not so frequently. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the shows that you've done. Um, okay. You have you've done so much, and I wasn't really sure where to start, so I had to. St- I'm, I'm going to start with uh, a name that I recognized at least, which was Billy Porter. You mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, uh, you did a play uh, called "While I Yet Live," written by the Tony Award-winning uh, actor about his own life, kind of mostly based around his family and upbringing in Pittsburgh, uh, a love letter to the women who raised him in a very religious household at a time when it was not easy really to come out as a gay man. Um, right. Tony Award nominee Cheryl Caller, um, who did Mothers and Sons, Next Fall, Adrift in Mako, uh, directs the premiere. It starred Tony Award winner Lillis White, 
uh, Emmy Award winner Esapatha Murkison, uh, Elaine Graham, Sharia Irving, uh, Kevin Morrow, Sharon Washington, and Larry Powell. Uh, what was the process of working on this play like for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I've known Billy for many years, and I, I had also known uh, Cheryl from other things. Mm-hmm. And Billy had done a lot of developing of the play in various um, earlier readings and such, even before I came on it. Um, the The thing was to find Billy's voice in the actor who ultimately was Larry Powell. And um, that was a great responsibility to do that. Um and um, it was just it was a piece in which we all felt there was it was very important for to um, really honor Billy's life and, and his journey. And I felt that as we had all really worked very hard to do that together in terms of the producers, the, the director and me and, of course, everything to support Billy. And Sapetha was on it already. Mm-hmm. And that helped tremendously. Lilius White, I forget if she was on it or not, but she knew Billy and um they were very close. Um, Kevin Morrow, we cast to play Billy's father, and that was a very difficult role to cast because we wanted to get that right. And I had used Kevin in some other shows. And same thing with Larry Powell. I had known them from other things. And I was thrilled that um, Cheryl and Billy responded to those actors amongst the others we cast, and Sharia, too. Um, it was, I mean, the the experience was one of great responsibility because it was, it was, um, it really hit a deep spot for him and us. Mm-hmm. Is there potential with something like that, or with, with because this is such a personal story? Is there a potential of being too precious about things and not allowing the actors that come in to be? No, absolutely no. not. Because um, I think that no, I, I absolutely not preciousness at all. I think that. Um, the fact that the story was out there, it was very important to get it right. And I think that Cheryl is a, is a really smart director who wouldn't allow it to be precious and with the producers. Um, and I think the actors just wanted the opportunity to, to be seen. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't feel it was precious at all. Well, when you're casting somebody who is not just a real life human being uh, and telling their own story, but also involved with that project what kind of unique challenges does that present i um i um keep going back to the word responsibility i guess there's a responsibility to honor billy's writing and billy's journey and and the family members that were represented there Mm -hmm. so um i think it's different than just a role that's a role um, this was a role based on, you know, um, his his life and and why he was he was willing to tell it. What sort of characteristics do you, as a casting director, kind of key in on about Billy that you need to not necessarily replicate? That's the wrong word, but find in another person to to the the core of the emotional truth of Billy. That's a that's a tough question to mm. answer because I think that it's it's in this case it was the actor who who had uh, I think Billy is is so smart but also deeply sensitive and and functions on a very high frequency of of craft 
and yet the story was one of a younger of him in a younger incarnation and somebody who was still finding their way through life so i think it was important to find an actor who was not you don't go oh he looks like billy or he acts like billy but who i think had the deep sensitivity of billy to bring that across on stage in this journey so for the the core emotional state of billy the the not just the outer uh, which I think some people so often get hung up on. Does he look like the person? Is it, you know? No, it wasn't about, it, it was about the entire package. Yeah. Well, this one was at the primary stages, right? They're the producers, yeah. Primary they are the stages are, are, is the producing entity, and they're a theater company, an off-Broadway theater company mm-hmm. in New York that's been around for about 35 years now. About 35 years. And you've been with them for a fair amount of time too, yeah? As resident casting director? Yeah, about 20 plus years, I'd say, give or take. And what does that mean to be the resident casting director of a stage? It means that I've been very fortunate to work on a, a great majority of their productions that they've produced. And is that a standard? And I'm, again, this is uh, a not, lot of I'm ignorance. Not in, I'm not on staff there. Okay. But I, but they're an account that I've been fortunate to work with for many, many years. So okay. I would be, in many cases, the first call if they, if they have a project and, and needed my services. And how did you become associated with Primary Stages? I am trying to remember. Um, I, I believe it, it's one of those things where it's become so holistic at this point um i know that i was introduced to to their founder by i believe daryl roth who's a producer Mm -hmm. um and the current artistic director i i don't even remember how we met anymore but but we've known each other for such a long time i know him from he was the literary manager at one point of primary stages and then he went off and worked for another producer and then he came back and was was back at primary stages again and then ultimately became the artistic director um and i um got to cast his wife before they were even married and we became friendly in that way so i think it's one of those um just lives intertwined in in various capacities and in work and i feel like that's how you do land these things there's there's no uh, secret to getting into those places it's about relationships it's about building up because uh, you're going to be working with these people very closely in creative confines. That's uh, that's a lot more difficult than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Um, and the stakes are always so high. You know, that's. I think that's what we've all, what we all know too. What you have been hearing, I'm sure, over and over again is, is you really want to get it right because there's no room to get it wrong. No, there isn't because if one piece doesn't work, the whole thing doesn't work. That's right. And that's that's a really hard thing to come to grasps with. <laughs> well, and also you talk about being sort of in some ways the invisible craft. Hmm. And yet when that craft doesn't work, it's the first thing that people comment on. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, speaking of craft, what are what are some issues that you see from actors that are less versed in theater when coming in? you know, people who are more versed in television and film when they try to make the transition over to theater? Uh, I don't see it that often that people go in that direction. It's usually theater going into film and TV. Uh Yet what sometimes happens is people who are doing more film and TV and have have gotten out of practice a little 
sometimes they forget how to project hmm. or their choices are a little smaller or um, it, it's just a, a different um, it's just I think smaller is is a good way of putting it it's a little more intimate yeah because uh, on the stage you you cannot be very small um, no uh, I want to talk about another show that you did let's talk a Christmas story the musical yes that was fun. This this had to be huge. It's uh, it rave so reviews huge. on Broadway. It's based on the movie that runs around the clock during Christmas time. Uh, you worked on this from reading to the regional premiere. You did two tours, a Broadway production, and then at Madison Square Garden. First and foremost, how awesome <laughs> was it to be a part of something this big? And it was Pasek and Paul's like really big show that uh -huh. I mean, people knew of them, but then they really blew blew up even more than they had already blown up. Mm -hmm. I think it really was was great. It was funny for me because I had never watched a Christmas story on TV. I um, never unwrapping my gifts. I you know I always flip channels, but uh -huh. I was a big It's a Wonderful Life person. Okay, so so I would see um, Peter Billingsley and on TV, and I see the kid with his tongue stuck against the flagpole and then i go okay back to you know it's a wonderful life <laughs> it's a story that resonates more with me but um once i got the job boy did i immerse myself and then for subsequent holidays i would wrap gifts and stay up all night watching the loop over and over <laughs> and over and over and over again so it did become a way of life i i but i discovered it much later on and even you know it's amazing the gifts you get when you work on a show like that from a you know the leg lamp to leg lamp ornaments to leg lamp um, <laughs> kitchen magnets to I could just go on and on to oh fudge fudge you know it just goes on but it was wild and I I um to this day I have to say not only was it a wild and wonderful experience in many ways but to see those kids now grown up and and mm. I just taught a workshop recently and one of um the Ralphies was in my class and he's graduating college and that was very strange and then they um our little boy luke spring who is this incredible tapper his mom and i are still in touch and we we talk occasionally and it's just it just and and the creative team and it's just it was really um a very special time how big was the cast in this show i think it was 28 ultimately 28. if i'm remembering correctly like it's that's huh. a huge cast there's a lot of singing a lot of dancing a lot of kids. A lot of kids. What are some of the unique casting issues that come along with, one, casting so many kids, but casting something that's so big that also moves? Because I think people uh, forget about, like, a, a, a regional production goes from place to place. How do you manage that with children? Well, it's interesting when you're auditioning kids you're also auditioning their parents you want to make sure not only that the kids are great uh -huh. um, but it's a really hard job to be a parent to go on tour with your child and as a parent you have your own life and you're giving over your life to your child to make their dreams come true but then there's also the culture of the parents being with the parents because that's they have their own social thing and then you have the kids being with the kids and you want to make sure that everybody's going to work well and play well together Plus, we would start casting the kids six or seven months in advance, and kids grow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this could be problematic. So we had to make sure we also had backups or enough time 
to find other children if, if the kids aged out or especially we were dealing with a number of boys who are who still had to play prepubescent boys so we had to watch their voices weren't going to change mm-hmm. also so so there were many things to to keep under consideration there and these kids what they had to do was what 20, 30, 40-year-olds have to do their level of professionalism and dance ability and acting ability and singing ability had to be very, very high. And um, I, I truly wasn't all of, the, of these kids. And we did a search. So our, I was spending a lot of time in Chicago and Los Angeles, and we searched New York. And it was before online searches were quite the way they are now. It was just sort of still just happening. So it was quite exhaustive what was being done in person as well as um, online mm-hmm. and just really getting the word. And we saw thousands of kids. I mean, when you, because I, again, don't know a whole lot about this, when you say you did two tours of that, what does a tour of a show like this entail? What? How many places are you going? How long does that well, last? This, one, this was different because these were more developmental tours. So it was about three or four stops as opposed to bus and truck where they're in buses and trucks and going that way. In many cases, um, as I recall, it was not quite like that. There was some bus involved, but it was a, a little better than that. But mm-hmm. it did mean they had to you know, they did have to stay healthy. Yeah. It, it wasn't a 52-week kind of tour because it started around October and would go through close to New Year's. So okay. I mean, one of the things is that the families and the kids and the grown-ups had to really, you know, they're giving up sort of what their normal holiday plans are to, to be performing in something like this because it was so specific holiday-wise. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was difficult, we talked about this a little with Billy, but there was a responsibility to really honor the film and meet the yeah. audience's expectations because, as you sort of indicated, I sense that this is a film that's a big part of or was a big part of your life growing up. Very much so. And, and um, you know, you sort of have your – it, there's there are rhythms to how people speak. And even though it wasn't a musical, it's rhythms, how they speak, how they look, the environment. And those were things that – they didn't want to, you know, do the film live on stage, but they did want to honor the integrity and the people of the film. So Dan Loria is is nothing like the original guy who played the old who played um, the narrator, but yet Dan had the essence of what that narrator was. Mm-hmm. What kind of conversations are you having with the director and and the powers that be in theater? about the casting on something that is so iconic? Well, the, the uh, Ralphie had to, um, uh, there had to be the sense that this kid could be the Ralphie from the movie, that he could be Peter Billingsley. Okay. And Peter was around. He, he was at some of the casting calls. And, you know, it, that was a that was very important that we find the right kid because that was the anchor in many ways, as were the parents. Um, so I think that there was the integrity to the to the script and the story so the the conversations were really about that and how to get that across and then on top of that you have to find somebody who looks feels is ralphie but that can also sing (laughs) and dance oh my god and the notes he had to hit were quite (laughs) extraordinary but also the dad john bolton was magnificent playing Mm -hmm. the dad i mean he he really was like on the one hand, he elicited the curmudgeonly quality, but he was also a brilliant song and dance man in that show as he 
still is. But but what he did and that his his uh, you know major award number would have the audience on their feet at the end because it was really amazing what he did mm-hmm. with all those like lamp dancing people. <laughs> what do you think? actors or performers just performing arts uh creatives in general learn in the theater that they don't necessarily get from the other mediums of television or or film oh i think the power of human contact and the fact that you um i think um it's a live art form and i think we're also distracted these days and i think when you go to see live theater or you act on stage, you don't become invisible. The audience right now, I think, sometimes forgets that the people on stage can hear you Mm. and they can see you and they can feel the same. If it's a freezing cold theater, they feel it. Or if it's a really hot theater, they feel it. I mean, it's just like we are having a communal uh, experience together. And uh, there's still magic to that. And I think that's what why it it needs to stick around and people need to go. There's no separation of the screen. It's, it's, uh, and what, actually, you know what, I'm just going to jump to it. Because one of the other plays uh, that I wanted to talk about of yours that caught my eye um, because of how it was all set up was... It was an oak tree, wasn't it? It was an oak tree. It was, (laughs) it was an oak tree. This play, just reading about how it was put together... Um, I also stumbled across a TEDx talk that oh. Tim did. Um, Tim Crouch did a Tim, TEDx talk. I had no idea. And in it, he discusses an oak tree uh, deeply. So much so that it, I, I really want to see a full version of this play. There is there is a 10-minute intro and kind of a, a YouTube video of him kind of setting up the play and not Uh really getting into it. Um, So I've seen just a little bit of it. One of the things about this that I mentioned earlier is the idea of not being able to uh, research um, uh, casting directors as much. But with this one, finding that little tidbit of the play and seeing how it was put together uh, and then watching Tim talk about it in this TEDx talk, it's it's kind of mind-boggling. So for all of you who don't know what we're talking about, um, it's an off-Broadway play by playwright and performer Tim Crouch. Uh, and each performance was done with one other actor. Uh, every performance that being a different actor. And they weren't allowed to know anything about the play or see the script till what, 45 minutes before the show? No, actually, they could Just, talk to Tim 45 minutes before the show, but oh. they didn't get the script. And it was only pieces of the script at a time what, until they got on stage. Right. So it, it's never improvised. And nope. the lines are given to them kind of in the moment. Um, he plays a, uh, a hypnotherapist or a, a hyp- uh, hypnotist. And f- the, from what I saw, uh, the roster of performers included people like F. Murray Abraham, Charles Bush, Reed Burney. James Urbaniak, uh, Alexandra Neal, Katie Finneran, and Tova Felcha. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Nailed it. Um, and Frances McDormand was in it, too. Uh, she wasn't mentioned in any of the articles. Really? That's... Mm-hmm. Okay. So, mm-hmm. 
first off, I have to ask how you came to work with Tim and how do you even begin thinking about casting something like this? Oh my God. That was, it was oh, such an amazing project. So the producers and I had worked on a number of projects together and they were so smart. They called a meeting between me and the press agent and uh, Tim wasn't in town yet. And we just really brainstormed about what would be the best way to make this happen. And uh, what what I felt would be the best way, and they, they supported this, was all you have to do is get that first person. And if you get the right first person and people start getting excited about it, it's going to go from people being trepidatious to people really, really wanting to do it. Yeah. And, um, and that's really... What happened was they they said, Stephanie, go. You know, you know these people. You know how to pitch this. Um, and it was really about building trust with actors and also their representatives. Um, we also did it at the Odyssey Theater. It was different producers in L.A., but it was a very different experience. In New York, um, I found that once the word got out, people started calling me and asking if they could be part of it. And that was uh, that was when I knew we really had something even more special than already. Um, were you met early uh, on with fear? Well, yeah. I mean, the idea. I mean, of, it's terrifying. Um, <laughs> well, it, it's. A I, bit. I would think it's terrifying. Well, although, what I was very clear to say was why Tim chose to write this piece and do it. He had been very successful. He had gone from being a theater actor to he had a family of I think four or five, mm -hmm. and he needed to support them. And he got a very successful TV show. And what he found was he really missed the immediacy of theater. Hmm. And he wanted to create something where he could go back to getting that that to happen. And he had done it in the UK. And actually, my producer, I think, had seen it in Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Festival in Scotland. And I think that's where this whole idea came from, to bring it over here. And um, so what I communicated was really the fact that this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at that point. And... Um, and really key into actors who really missed sort of taking that risk. And and they would always be safe. Tim would never do anything because it was all scripted. It's just not the traditional way that one gets the script. Right. And I think people got really excited about that. And, and Tim is of some note. He had done shows, but nothing quite like this before. Um, and it was just so much fun. And and really uh, like always being on the high wire. I always felt like I was on the high wire yeah. in the casting, the way the actors were on stage. Well, in, in just the little bits and pieces that I saw of it, and especially this TED talk, which I highly recommend, it'll be in the show notes. Uh, I'll send you a link to it as well. It's uh, it's entitled "The Art of Auto Suggestion," and basically he breaks down the theories and the ideas behind an oak tree. Um, that the reasoning behind why he's feeding lines and why he's uh, creating this atmosphere of almost a repeat. And it seemed like from the reviews that I read uh, at the time that a lot of people didn't get it, um, no. that what was being done. It was ahead of its time in so yeah. many ways. But uh, And I think that's why it would be interesting to see it now. I wonder if it I would do have too. the same power. I, I really think it, I think it, I think it would have more power. Um, mm. because I think people are more, it, it's different than anything that I've ever seen. Um, in that he's telling you what he's doing as he's doing it and telling the other person what to say as they're saying it. But w the way he breaks it down in this TEDx talk 
really makes you understand that that's what all theater is doing. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what all stories uh, there's there's an auto suggestion that has to happen within us for us to look and say, oh, that's not Brad Pitt. That's somebody else. There, there are things that we have to go through to make that happen. So it's it's really, really fascinating. Um, I I cannot imagine how amazing that must have been. Once people did start getting excited about it, how did you then narrow down to the people that that were right for it? Um, well, that was the great thing. Uh, going back to what you were saying about Shakespeare and, and non-traditional casting, yeah. this was a case where Bright meant usually somebody between the ages of 30 to 80, male or female. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't matter. It could work. They just um, had to have lived, yeah. quite honestly, and, and be game for whatever. So it, that was where it was really fun because it was never the same. And I would um, both pitch people the idea of doing it and get pitched by people wanting to do it and ultimately having to get that okayed by the producers and ultimately Tim. And um, Tim, after every show, would give a report as to his experience. And, and I think there were maybe two people that didn't quite work for them, mm-hmm. but we saw we had over 100 people do it. So I thought that was pretty good. You had over 100. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay. Yeah, from, from what I read, I didn't realize it ran that long or... That mm-hmm. there were that many people that came in and played. That's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. I want to be respectful of your time. One thing I'm curious about, though, is the New York theater talent pool. And I've always heard being in L.A. that it's a very close-knit community. And I'm curious, actually, how big it is from a casting perspective and how tight-knit it actually is. Do you see a lot of new people coming in, or is it often you're working from a pool that you are already fairly familiar with. No, no, no. It's always growing and evolving and changing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I mean, sure. There, there are some, you know, there's a nice community here from which to draw, but no, it's always, it, it's constantly um, changing mm-hmm. and growing and people come, they go, they find other things to do. They, mm-hmm. um, so many people are, are making very nice livings in TV right now in film in New York that uh, it's very important that we keep cultivating and growing our pools of talent here. How does somebody stand out in that talent pool to you? Um, I think that it's it's um, it's 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 sometimes such an inexplicable thing to try to articulate because it it's a spark. And, and, you know, that spark and that talent and that way they um, come in to approach a job is really what does it. It's, it's about how are they the right fit or they're, um, they just have a, a, um, a life about them and a, a way of approaching the material. And I think that's what stands out in their, um, their rightness in the moment. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really hard thing to, you're right, to articulate and to really understand and to wrap my head around. Because I ask these kind of questions and I I realize how broad they are. I realize that it's, there's no real single answer to any of these questions um, because I keep getting a lot of different answers. (laughs) Um, But I think what's interesting about this show to me and interesting about all of these conversations and having multiple conversations around the same subject is that we get to narrow in on 
those things, what it is that makes somebody stand out, even if it is a bunch of vagities, uh, vague instances. Mm-hmm. When you start to kind of mosaic those vague instances together of what it is that helps people stand out, you start to get to the point where you can actually start to make out a picture of it. The last question that I would like to ask uh, is also another bit of a vague question, but I think it's a really uh, important one. What moves you? I guess what moves you to continue to want to do what you do? I think that it's what I was saying earlier about finding purpose. And that purpose, I think we live in a time where um, we need all the help we can get. And if I could put something positive in the world and could do that in the work I'm, I'm connected to and add a little more magic to make everybody think a little and reflect and um, maybe experience some joy, then I'm doing it right. So that's what moves me to be able to contribute toward um, toward things being a little better. I like that. I think we need a little bit better in, in this world. And I love the optimism. I love your excitement. We've got so well, much more thanks. to talk about. You know, we didn't talk about uh, a couple of the other plays, specifically uh, Daniel's husband or... Oh, uh, that's very a very special piece. Maybe we'll do a part two. I think we're going to have to do a part two. I, I really appreciate your your sincerity and your openness uh, in this and i uh, i feel like i've learned a whole lot in this conversation so thank you very thank very you. much we really hope that you have enjoyed this episode of placing faces do not forget to like comment subscribe love heart thumbs up and share this episode we would really love you to like us the one the only maria perry thank you so much for producing the way you produce quick word from Miss Maria Perry. Hi, I'm Maria Perry, the producer of Placing Faces, and I'm just popping in to let you know that you can now find and support Placing Faces on Patreon. This podcast is a labor of love, and that means our production cycles are slower than we'd like when our day jobs get in the way. We're hoping to be able to get one more person involved and make the editing process a little quicker. And when you support us, you can join the community that we're building. Find out who we'll be talking to next, submit questions, and vote in polls about upcoming episodes. So find us on Patreon or check our website for a link at placingfaces.com. Placing Faces is powered by Collaborator.com, a media production service connecting media professionals to companies, brands, and agencies, allowing you to scale your production based on your needs, connecting companies and creatives seamlessly. We would also like to thank our partners at the Casting Society of America. The CSA is a hub of information about this branch of the film industry. To learn more about the society and what it takes to get into casting, visit castingsociety.com. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate all the nice messages and kind words. I'm glad to hear you guys are learning a lot because I am too. Until next time, be well.